the reason why I want you to think about big deals, fine. So this morning we're talking about Discover the Gathering. Um, so we're taking one day, and I want to just try to share with you kind of who we are, what we're about, what we value, just kind of give you maybe a behind-the-scenes look at what, what moves us, what motivates us as a church. Um, my hope is that when you walk out today, you'll become like, man, I had a great find today. I found the gathering. I mean, a lot of you have been here with us for a while. You kind of get our DNA. You kind of know what we're about. But this is just that official Boom. You can write a bunch of stuff down. I'll go ahead and warn you. I'm going to throw scripture after scripture after scripture at you. Some will read, some we won't, but you just jot them down. If you get lost, you don't get all the scriptures down. Always the message will be online. It's already up on the website. When you get home, you can print it out and highlight all the scriptures. All right, so here we go. I'm going to tell you, what, tell you right now up front where we're going this morning. Um, Andy Stanley, I love to listen to Andy Stanley. He says you should always define the win, and what that means is make sure people know when they have won, define what the goal is. And so here's the goal this morning. Um, the win this morning is a, a picture that I have. Here's what we're going to prevent. And I think when you see it, you'll be like, yeah, I think I can agree that that's a good win. Um, do we have that picture? Go ahead. There we go. This is the win. If we can prevent this from happening to you, then this would be the win. Um, I've never been on a blind date. I'm just curious. Anybody ever been on a blind date? Raise your hand. Okay, I've never been on one, but here's what I would not want to happen if I went on a blind date. I would not want to, um, especially in today's age, um, you, can, you can be on eHarmony, you can be on Match.com, you can text, you can talk to people on the phone. It's possible that you could have like a two- or three-month relationship with somebody that you've never seen, right? And it's possible that as you have that two- or three-month relationship with somebody you've never seen, you really start to like them. And then hairy dude in a tank top shows up. And you go, oh, oh, are, are you the person I've been talking to? <laughs> you know, we don't want this to happen to you, okay? We would like today, as much as possible, to let you know who we are so that you don't get two or three or four months down the road and go, I kind of like the gathering. And then one day we say, well, by the way, we're about this. And you go, What? We don't want the gathering to become a fat dude in a tank top holding a heart, candy hearts and flowers, okay? Which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but I just complimented all of you and said that you were a really hot chick. Okay, moving on from there. When I was a senior in college, um, I had been dumped. It was sad and tragic, and I know that you're shocked that that would even happen because you know me. I should have gotten a better awe. When I was a senior in college, no, I'm going to give you another chance. Here we go. When I was a senior in college, I was dumped. Thank you. Although i got to say, our Pfeiffer students were a little bit slow there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, over there. This side was into it, yeah. I was dumped. So here's what happened. I was dumped. I was on the rebound. That's not a good place to be. But there was this girl. There was this girl. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, it was not Wendy, because you're already thinking, I know the story. No, you don't. This girl was not Wendy. This girl was a cheerleader, and she was awesome. <laughs> and um, I just, I, I had my eye on her, and she was, you ever, um, guys, do you ever meet a girl, and you think, never in a million years would she go out with me, but you still dream about it? Yeah. Um, this was her for me, and so... I just, because I guess because I was so hurt and so devastated, I didn't care what happened beyond that point. So I asked her out, and she said, yes. 
wow. And I was like, are you kidding me? She said, yes. And so I'm excited. I'm pumped the whole week before. I'm like, you know, I'm, you're checking your breath 20 times a day, and you're just making sure we get to the restaurant. We sit down. We start. We order our food, and if we're waiting on the food, she starts to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk all about herself. And about five minutes into the date, I'm thinking, this girl is not what I thought she would be. And then I met Wendy, and the rest is history. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes we realize that life is way too short to waste like that. And the, the end of that can be painful, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been great if I'd have walked up to her and said, hey, by the way, I think you're awesome. I'd like to take you out on a date. And she had said, I'd love to go on a date, but I'm just really self-absorbed, and I'm going to talk about myself the whole time. <laughs> and I would have said, I got a friend I want to hook you up with, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have wasted all those weeks excited about it. I wouldn't have wasted a week before anticipating it. I would not have wasted time or money buying her steak dinner, right? If I'd have known that up front, I would have just moved on. So that's kind of the goal this morning. I want you to know who we are up front as much as we can so that you will um, feel good about being here. So here's where we're going to start, the big idea. This is the big idea. The big idea this morning is actually our vision statement at the church. This is what we feel like should drive everything that we do and every decision that we make. At the gathering, here's the big idea. We live near God in order to be sent to those far from him. We live, it looks awesome on this screen, doesn't it? We live near God in order to be sent to those far from him. And so in order to accomplish that, we've got to be defined by four qualities. And yes, they do spell out the word near. Everybody say near. Four qualities. Here we go. In order to accomplish that, in order to live near God and be sent by him to those far from him, in order for that to happen, we've got the number one, we must be necessary. Let me explain that because that's a little bit weird, right? We must be necessary. Here's what I mean. All of us, I'm assuming, have experienced the pain of a young love moving away. When I was in middle school, I was a jerk. I mean, I hope I've changed, but maybe not. But I know then I was at least a jerk. And I did this one time. I called my girlfriend, and I told her that my dad, who was a doctor, had been transferred to Raleigh and that we were going to move the next day. I wasn't true, of course, but I just was curious how she would react. And she starts to sob and sob and sob. And I felt like a jerk, but I couldn't tell her it was lying because that would make me more of a jerk. And so I just kind of kept going with it. It was awkward when I didn't move the next day, but, you know, whatever, right? But here's the deal. All of us have had young loves, young crushes, puppy loves. They just kind of, we, we are together, and it's like our whole world, and, you know, you're all 11-year-old bundles of love, right? And then you move away, and you're like, my whole world has just fallen apart. And then two hours later, you're over it because there's another crush, right? All of us have kind of experienced that, this pain of, man, I'll never live without you. And then suddenly we realize that we could. We don't want to be that. We want to be necessary. 
Absence does not always make the heart grow fonder, especially if there was never any intentional commitment to the relationship in the first place. We want to be a church that is necessary in the world around us, okay? Is it making a little more sense now? If we're going to be near the world, bringing them that are far from God back to God in Christ, we've got to be necessary. We can't be a church that people go, yeah, I can take it or leave it. Our goal is to be necessary. We want to help others see that they have a need that can be intentionally filled with three themes that we will always preach on and always teach on at the gathering. So here's, here's the clue, okay? These three things I'm going to tell you that the Bible says are necessary, if I get done with them and you're like, I hate those, you just need to leave. Because this is what we teach, okay? Because the Bible says that these are necessary. Number one, Jesus' death on the cross. John 3, 14, 15. All of us know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3, 14 and 15 says this right before. It says, as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so Christ had to be lifted up on the cross. It was necessary that Jesus would be lifted up and killed on a cross. Why? Well, that thing he's talking about with Moses, you ever notice the medical symbol, the, the pole and the snake? That's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, a bunch of people were dying, and Moses was like, God, what do I do? And God said, create this snake on a stick, and it's like chicken on a stick, right? Snake on a stick and hold it up, and if you'll do that and people look at it, they'll be healed. And so what they said in John is this, just like Moses did that, I'm going to lift Jesus up on the cross. And when I lift him up on the cross, people can be healed. Healed from what? Everything. And specifically sin. Look at the person next to you. Don't talk to them. They're sinners. Here's what Romans says. Romans 3.10. Romans 3.23 is clear. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus' death and resurrection was necessary. So you and I do not have the luxury of making it optional. And I just want you to know up front at the gathering, we will never make that optional. You will always hear. You can have total confidence that when you bring your friends to the gathering, one, they will be loved. Two, they will be accepted. Three, they will be told that they need Jesus. Every time, because it's necessary. Jesus is necessary. Here's something else that's necessary. Life with other believers is necessary. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So we know this. What does it mean? Life with other believers does what? It sharpens us. But the awesome thing is, you ever had abrasive relationships? I mean, I don't mean like unhealthy, but just people that kind of they rub you the wrong way, but at the end you're better. It sharpens us. But the cool thing is, Psalm 133, verse 2 says that unity in a church is like oil on the top of, of a head that runs down onto the beard. What does oil do? I mean, it, it lubricates. It soothes us. But life with other believers is necessary, one, so we can be sharpened, and two, so we can be soothed. If you're a Lone Ranger Christian... You're doomed to fail. Let me say that again because this is America. If you're a lone ranger Christian, you are doomed to fail. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Let me just paraphrase it for you. It says this basically at the end. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Remember those commercials? I've fallen and I can't get up. The one that I laughed at when I was 18 and now I'm like, I can kind of see that happening. I pity the man 
who falls and has no one there to help him up. It says that one could be overpowered, but a cord, uh, one can be overpowered, but a cord of three, a cord of three, who can stop it? Man, there is power in living life together. Jesus' death is necessary. Life with other believers is necessary. And this is, this is critical. The power of the Holy Spirit is necessary. Acts 1.8. If you were here for Acts, this is way back at the beginning. Acts 1.8 clearly states what our call is. We are called to be witnesses for Jesus near and far. Right? Starting in our city and working our way out. We're called to be his witnesses. And it's also clear that we can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The who? The Holy Spirit. Look, there's lots of ways to see the Holy Spirit, right? And if you've been in church any at all throughout your life, you've probably been in churches. Some of them are like, hey, the Holy Spirit's awesome. And then the others are like, hey, the Holy Spirit's like my crazy Uncle Earl, right? We never talk about him. We keep him in a closet. But I just want you to know, here at the gathering, we value the Holy Spirit. We preach that the Holy Spirit gives Gifts that are necessary for accomplishing the call that he's called us to. We are part of the assembly of God. That's the denomination that we're a part of. It's a Pentecostal denomination. What does Pentecostal mean? It means that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. It means that we believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to be crazy idiots that swing on chandeliers. No. I mean, I guess it's possible. It's not going to happen for me because I can't jump. But it means that we believe that he has empowered us to go fulfill the call. He says, you will, you will be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. So I'm never going to be the guy at the gathering who stands up in front of you and says, Jesus called you to live near God in order to be sent to those far from him. Go do it in your own power. Because you can't. I mean, have you ever tried to lose weight and it didn't work? Have you ever made resolutions in January that you kept until January the 3rd? I mean, we don't have the power for that. So we believe it. We are not ashamed of it. We believe that God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us fulfill that call. I love the assemblies of God. Here's the thing. Are we all about denomination? No. But I love denominations that are committed to a mission call. And the assemblies of God started as a mission agency. They actually started so that they could send people to those far from God. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Sounds a lot like what we're about. Jot down 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. If you read that, you'll find a long list of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. And here's what it means practically for you that we're a Pentecostal church. It means that we will always be a church that actively teaches our body to pursue and develop the gifts that they've been given. Um, the person next to you, just take a quick look at them. Do they look gifted to you? <laughs> if you're married to them, you better say yes. The truth of the matter is that God has gifted all of us. 
And we are so committed to helping you find your gift. And that passage in Corinthians says that the Holy Spirit has given those gifts out as he determined. So many times don't we look at people and we go, you know what, you could never be gifted. I mean, I see you on the outside, you got no shot. I mean, we wouldn't say that out loud, would we? But we would think it. And yet the Holy Spirit looks at, if he looks at this whole room this morning, and he does, here's what he does. Okay, let's see, you might need the gift of mercy. You need the gift of administration. Ah, the gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues. Oh, man, I need to, I need to give you the gift of healing. See what I'm saying? That's what he does. He starts to distribute the gifts in the body the way that he determines. And what it means for you practically as a Pentecostal church is that we will never be a church that stands up and goes, well, you know, like he might have like 20 gifts, but we're just going to talk about the three that make us feel good. Man, I'm all in on this thing. I'm all in on finding all the power that we can possibly have from God in the Holy Spirit. We're also committed to um, yielding that power with responsibility. I thought about doing this as an um, <clears throat> illustration. This would have been fun. Bring a little chainsaw in here, crank it up, ring, 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 and hand it to a three-year-old. And then just tell them to start running wild. What would y'all do? I'd be hanging from that. That's what I'd be doing, right? I would be jumping faster than, you know, like, that dude's white. He can jump when there's death involved, right? I believe sometimes that's what we do. I think sometimes we don't use power responsibly. So we just let people go crazy and run wild. We're not that place. We're not that place. We believe that it's our job to equip you with power, to teach you about the power of the Holy Spirit, and then to teach the body how to use that power responsibly. What did we learn from Spider-Man? With great... Come on, what did we learn from Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. Good deal. So we want to be necessary. The death of Christ, the fellowship of believers, and the power of the Holy Spirit are all necessary. And because we want to be necessary, we will intentionally teach those truths. That's in. Number two, we've got to be equipping. We must be equipping it's a great word, equipping. If you spend any length of time here, I'm going to make a statement, and you will not go, what? I can't believe that. We are, at the gathering, a teaching church. What? <laughs> You're holding an outline right now. Every week you come in, you have blanks. Every week you can scan a QR code and get notes. I mean, we, you know, this stuff just, I know you think it does. It just doesn't go poof, and there it is, right? I mean, we actually develop this stuff because we are committed to equipping you. We take seriously our call. It's found in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let's read that real quick. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Everybody good? Nobody's having seizures because the lights keep flickering? Okay, it's a Pentecostal church. I can have a seizure. I'll fit right in. Kidding. Huh, a little Pentecostal humor. That was great, wasn't it? Did you like that? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. I love this passage. It was he, he being God, it was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Everybody say, yeah, we've seen that, right? We've seen those people. They're the professionals. They're the people that went to seminary. 
maybe. Maybe. But what are they supposed to do? Verse 12, it tells us, he gave us those people so that they could stand up on a platform and look awesome and we could just sit back on our butts and do nothing. Wait, I'm sorry, I didn't read that right. Hold on, let me read it again. He gave us those people to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's our call. Our call, our mandate from God as leadership at the gathering is to equip you for ministry. And for us, that's a non-negotiable point. Our, our thing is this, we don't believe that something magic happens because you get the right pastor to pray for you. We believe that God wants to move in power through each member of the body. And so we're committed not only to teaching you, but developing you. So what's the primary tool for equipping? The Bible. That's the primary tool for equipping. Just jot down 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. That's the passage where Paul said, look, the Bible's good for teaching, rebuking, correcting. This is the primary tool for equipping. The Bible is like a surgical knife to be handled with grace. Hebrews 4.12 says that it's a double-edged sword. It's a surgical knife, and we're supposed to handle it with grace. The problem is sometimes we take it and use it like a hatchet, and we handle it with force. When I say we, I hope I don't mean we, but in general, in the body of Christ, have you ever been hatcheted by a Christian? Because God said, God said, God said, and it's like blood everywhere, and it's yours. I'm like, uh, that didn't feel good. Yeah, but it's truth, it's truth, it's truth. And that's not how we handle this. It's not how you handle the Word of God. Here's our commitment to you. I can say for me, for Phil, for Eugene, for others that will ever let come in this platform and speak, we will never be hatchet people with the truth. Because the Bible is clear that it is a double-edged sword. It pierces quickly. And it does the piercing. We just do the preaching. This is God's primary tool for equipping. How a church practically and organizationally works out the command to equip is not really specified in Scripture. That blows me away. I, mean, I spend a lot of time reading the Bible like, how do I do it? It just tells you what we're supposed to do. And he kind of leaves some of that up to us to figure out practically in our culture what's relevant here, how it works for us. And that's cool. So let me just tell you how we've worked that out at the gathering. We feel that the best leadership model, according to the Bible, is eldership. We've seen elders, if you've been with us through Acts, we've talked about elders a number of times. There's other places in the New Testament where he writes letters and he talks about elders as leaders in the church. Many of us have attended, many of us have probably been members of churches that were very congregational in the way that they ruled things. So they would do things like this. Everything was a vote, right? Um, they were thinking about changing the toilet paper in the bathroom to go from over to under. We're going to need to have a vote. All in favor of over. All in favor of under. Over wins. We're changing the toilet paper. Let's go rock the world for Jesus. I, I, I don't see that in Scripture, okay? So I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. You don't have to agree. I just want to at least understand, make sure that you understand our perspective scripturally. That, what I just described, seems to be very American, but in our understanding, it doesn't seem to be very biblical. 
So when you read through the Bible, the biblical model seems to be this. And you can jot this down so you don't forget it. Everyone has a voice, but not everyone has a vote. Everyone has a voice, but not everyone has a vote. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures to jot down so you know I'm not just feeding you a big line here. Because I know this is very different from our culture, okay? I totally get it. Here's what it means. 1 Corinthians 2.14. That talks about how some things are only spiritually discerned. Matthew 11.15, among many other times in the, in the Gospels, Jesus would end a teaching with this. Let, him who have, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Okay, so we learn in Corinthians that some things can't be naturally understood, but some things have to be spiritually understood. And we learn from Jesus that I'm telling you spiritual truth, but not everybody's got ears to hear it. Right. And then we know this is the worst one of all. Mark chapter four, the parable of the sower, where he throws out seed and he throws out seed on the four types of soil and only one soil actually produces fruit. That's the parable that led Billy Graham to say this. According to the scriptures, what Jesus taught us was if I stand on the platform in a church, 25 percent are saved. Let that sink in. That scares me. Mainly because congregational rule, that method of running a church, basically says this. Everybody gets a vote, but not everybody's spiritual. So that's democracy. That's not in the Bible. The Bible talks about having wise men, wise leaders, who seek the face of God, who can be trusted by the people, and who can lead the people. And that's the model that we've adopted here. It's a little bit different. Usually people that have elders are Presbyterian, right? Baptists have deacons. But the deacons of Baptist churches function like elders in the Bible. So we're just going to be very clear. That's what we believe. That's the leadership we've chosen here is elders. Because I couldn't even get you guys to agree on who's better, Wolfpack or Tar Heels. Although we all know it's the Wolfpack. Right? Yeah. See, we can't even decide football. How are we going to decide the kingdom of God? So we here entrust elders who seek the face of God to give input into where God's taken the gathering. Just because someone is in church doesn't make them spiritually wise or discerning. So do they have a voice? Absolutely. Do they have power of a vote to determine spiritual matters? No. Could they? Yes, as an elder. Um, now, let me tell you how the process works. In our early stages, because this next Sunday will be our two-year anniversary. So in the early stages, when we were meeting in my house, um, just you know, like 20 of us, we actually, there were three men. And we said, these three men, we feel, I said as a pastor, I feel like these three men, they've got a heart for God. They've got a heart for this church, for the vision of this church. And I asked the people, hey, what do you think about these guys? And they said, absolutely, man, we, we so see that. So everybody in that room, and 20 people in the room have a voice, right? And so those men were Larry Emmerich and Nehemiah Parr, who's not here today because he's out camping, which is awesome, I guess. I'm not a camper. Anyway, if I was a camper, that'd be awesome. And, and Jay Phillips. And so those were the three men. And so these three men, I've met with them for the last two years, and we meet once a month, and we pray together, and we talk about the church, and we talk about issues in the church, and many of you go to them and will say, man, what about this, and what about that, and we need help here, and they, they've got a heart for you guys. 
In the last two months, these men, and I, well, I shouldn't say the last two months, it's just official in the last two months. In the last six to seven months, we've been praying, God, we can't, we've got to have more elders. We need more reliable men that have a heart for Jesus that will seek him, the kingdom, and the will of God for this church. And so in the last two months, Tyler Thompson's come on board as an elder, and Phil's going to be an elder. And so these are the five men. Now, let me tell you how this is going to change going forward, Okay. Because we want you to have a voice. And so early on, it was like, look, you ever been going on a family trip and you're just so stressed? You got to get on the road. You got to get started. So you just tell your kids, just get in the van. Just shut up and get in the van. We don't have time to discuss it. Just trust me. I'm the mom. I'm the dad. I know where we're going. Get in the van. We're going, right? Well, that's kind of how it's been starting the church. But we're at a place now where we want to we be even more intentional. Eldership is a very serious deal in Scripture. And so we want to be more intentional, and we want to make sure that everyone has a voice, even if everybody doesn't have a vote. And so what we will do going forward is once a year, when it's time to to seek God about who we need to have in a position of elders, then we will make sure you know well in advance for the next two or three months, the elders are beginning to pray right now about who God would, would be tapping for the next role as an elder. And maybe you know somebody. Maybe you sit next to somebody in church and you're like, man, that guy is on fire for Jesus. He would be an awesome elder. And that's your opportunity to come to the elders and just say, how about this person? And then when we've prayed about those people and we feel like this is the person, that these are people that God wants to use in eldership, we'll let you know that, which gives you the chance, and we, we value this. We love feedback, right? So what if I get up and I go, so... Eugene's going to be an elder. The elders have met about it. We've prayed about it, and we just want to let you know that. And just if you've got any reason why Eugene shouldn't be an elder, just make sure you let us know. We would love it if you had to come to us and say, "Um, Paul, I don't know if you know this or not, but Eugene kills people. (laughs) What? Like, you mean the Eugene? Like, get up up and does announcement, Eugene? Yeah. Yeah. He killed my cousin, Ralph. You think we need to know that? Yeah. And who's that on? It's on y'all to tell us. So we're not trying to be dictators that tell you everything. We're just trying to seek God for the church. And that is a part of the, that's how the process allows everybody to have an equal voice, even if biblically they don't have an equal vote. Now, if you're like me, you've immediately started to think of the worst-case scenarios. You have already started to think, what do we do if we get the power-hungry elder who is hell-bent on getting shag carpet at the gathering? Well, I say we shoot him. That's what I say, right? The truth of the matter is, that process that I just described to you would never allow a person like that to be put into a position of eldership with a heart like that. Because according to Scripture, do you know what the true test is to be an elder? The true test is that these men are willing to lay their lives down for you. Now, I don't know how you are, but people who are willing to die for me, I find it a lot easier to trust them to make decisions concerning me. And I can tell you right now, the men that I just mentioned to you, because, I mean, you can get like, well, I didn't have a say. Yeah, get in the van. It's time to go. Okay, I get that. I totally get that. But I can tell you, I've met with these men, and I would, I would put my hands, my life in the hands of any of these men. 
Man, they, they've got a heart for this church. They pour their lives into this church. They love this church. And I love that. I love that. So we equip you. The leaders here equip you. But here's the great thing. Elders don't do everything because we're called as a church to equip you to do the ministry. And so the simplest way for you to start finding out what you were made for is to start serving on an IOS ministry team. Everybody say IOS. What in the world does that mean? It means this. Anybody got a mobile phone? Your mobile phone has what's called an iOS system. It's an operating system. And we believe this, that what operates the church at the gathering are servants. People who are willing to say, you know what, I'll do more than just sit on my butt and listen. I will jump in and serve. And that's what operates a church. And so the iOS ministry teams, it stands for I Offer Service. And it just says, we believe this. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve. You're not like Jesus when you sit and take notes. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve. And so our iOS teams, there are plenty of opportunities. You've seen um, some of these, you know, the people that look like pumpkins, right? The the orange shirts. (laughs) Like, can we get different shirts? I look like a pumpkin. No, we could, but I just like the fact that it makes you look like a pumpkin. Just kidding. However we do it, orange shirts, lanyards, whatever, there's plenty of places for you to serve. I I was talking with Carol. Carol's over our guest services, and so we're kind of working through, like, how many people do you need? And lo and behold, we find out that just for her stuff to work on a Sunday morning, she needs 20 people. Just her stuff, 20 people. So my guess is on a normal Sunday at the gathering, we probably need 30 to 40 volunteers that are willing to say, you know what? It's not about me. I'm coming to stand and serve other people. I'm going to serve people who are far from God so that they can come near God in Christ. I'm going to stand outside, thankfully, under an awning now. Isn't that an awesome awning? In the rain, you can be a greeter now. But until now, we've had people stand outside in the hot sun with no awning just to open a door. And you've been walking in that door. And you don't even think about the fact that they've been standing out there sweating. You're like, why are people always sweating at the gathering? What's up with that? because they're outside in the sun being baked so they can open the door for you to come in so that you can be equipped so that you can then serve. So you can open the door for somebody else so that they can come to know Jesus. That's the point. We're not just equipping you. We don't want to just teach you. We want to teach you so that you can do. That's our job. And so the best way for you this morning to apply just this part, man, just serve. Do you have to be a member at the gathering to serve? Sometimes. What do I mean by that? Here's a really good example. If you're a stranger and you come to my house and say I'm hungry, I will say to you, well, come eat with us. And I might even let you set the table. I might let you go out back and grill with me, and Wendy would be happy because I'm not a grill master. But you know what you're not going to do as a stranger in my house? You're not saying bedtime prayers with my kids because I don't trust you. I don't know you. There's some things that you can do. You don't have to be a member at this house. You can open a door and smile. You just need, if you're, man, if your life has been radically changed by Jesus, you just want to like, hey, man, you need to get in here. That bug wall works, man. You get in here, and you meet Jesus, and it's like, man, you're going to love it. I'll open the door for you. I want you to have that experience. That's cool, right? 
But there's certain things, and usually the more intimate the ministry, the more involved it is, the more closely it is into the DNA of our church, like stuff like standing up here on a platform and leading worship. That's pretty intense. Taking the mic and preaching, pretty intense. Working with our kids, we're starting to get close now, right? I think at that point it's okay for us to say, you know what, we love you. You need to be a member here. Can't do everything. You can't just come and go. You got to be planted. More about that in a minute. Um, we must be authentic. This is number three. So we, we've got to be necessary. That's in. We've got to be equipping. That's E. We've got to be authentic. This is number three. The first two points were the long ones. Everybody say, yay. That means we're flying to the end. Here we go. We must be authentic. I will say this. This one, I think we do really well. This one I get all the time. People walk in. They go, I don't know what it is about your church, man. I just love it there. Like, I mean, can you give me a word to describe it? I mean, anything to help us? Like, what? what is, and then here's what we get all the time. I don't know, it's just like it's real. This one we get. But I want you to know something. We don't, it doesn't happen accidentally. We're intentional about being authentic. Here's why we've got to be authentic. I hope this statement does not offend you. But the people that, that are far from God, that Jesus is sending us to, do you know what they have? They've got great BS detectors. They know a liar from a mile away. And so we can't just say it and not be living it. At the gathering, our faith is made authentic through community, specifically through community groups. Here's what this means. The way that we develop authentic faith is a word I'm going to say, and you're going to be like, oh, I wish you'd have said marshmallows. But the way we develop authentic faith is through friction. Yeah, just write friction under number three. I'm going to give you some verses. You're going to be like, I can't believe that's in the Bible, but it's in there. We use the word family around here a lot, and it's a great metaphor for who we are. Um, we tend to have good times, and we tend to have bad times. We laugh together. We rub each other the wrong way. It's probably not much different than your family or mine. But guess what happens in the process? First Peter 1, 6 through 7 says that friction makes your faith like gold and gives God glory. He said, why are you surprised? Don't be surprised when you're encountering hard times because it's refining your faith like gold and giving God glory. John 13, 35, Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples when you have love for each other. So what that says is when we truly love each other authentically, the world sees Jesus. People like to be alone because it's easier. I asked you earlier about introverts and extroverts. I am an introvert. Hard to believe because I'm the one on the platform holding the microphone. But listen, I am an introvert. I would choose a deserted island any day of the week. People, I love people, but you can ask Wendy at the end of today, because I've been around all of you, I'm just like, unplugged, I'm just dying. And I need to go be alone. I need to go watch a Panthers game. I just need to do something by myself. I need to go run for two hours. I need to do something, to ch and that charges me back up. So I want you to at least know this. If you're an introvert, I totally, totally understand that community groups make you want to wet your pants. I get it. I totally get it. 
but it doesn't allow us to make it optional. Remember how we talked about this was necessary? Life with other believers is necessary. It's just that it comes easier for extroverts. Extroverts are like, yes, let's do it all together now. We'll even choreograph a dance. It'll be fantastic. We'll put it on YouTube. It'll be our community group YouTube. And introverts are like, dude, I'm not coming to that. So I I do at least want to say to you that half the room loves this and half the room hates it. At least if you're an introvert, you can take solace in knowing that your pastor is too. And this is not the easiest part of it for me. But being alone will never make you the best you can be. We've got to have friction for that. And you and I actually provide the friction for each other. Now, I want to give you the verse so you'll know it's biblical. Just write down Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24 is a great verse. It says, let us then spur one another on to love and good deeds. Okay, let's spur one another on to love and good deeds. And I got really, I just pulled out my phone. I got on Blue Letter Bible, and I looked it up so I could sound really smart today. And I found out what the Greek word means that we translate spur. And this is awesome because it's in the Bible. I can't believe it. The word literally means to irritate. Nobody preaches that in church. That part of what we're supposed to do for each other is irritate each other, and in the irritation, it makes us better. Like, look, I'm a runner. I don't like irritation, okay? Um, I don't have time to go into the story, but bloody nipples are real. It's true. Don't Google it. Or at least if you do with other people around you. It's it's awkward, but it's real. And, and it just irritation, it just chafes. And all of a sudden, it's like, I mean, you can see pictures of people in marathons. And this is like red running down their shirt. And it's, it's awful. Chafing is not of God. <laughs> except in this case. And so let's just bring it all full circle, right? I know you're still stuck on bloody nipple. That's awesome. It's a great phrase. Friction. What did we learn in the necessary step? What happens when we have life together? It sharpens us because there's friction. But the good news is there's body glide as well. It's called the oil of the Spirit. We just talked about it earlier. And so the body soothes one another as well. So I'm not going to call you to join a church where we just fight all the time because it makes us stronger. There's people that parent like that. Just throw their kids out and say, just, Boys will be boys. Just have at it. Fight. If it's not broken, you'll you'll heal. That's not my idea of parenting, okay? Like, okay, just duke it out, boys. But sometimes it happens. We start to fight. But the great thing is, biblically, the body of Christ comes in and soothes one another as well. Psalm 133, we talked about it. It's like oil coming down the beard of Aaron. So Hebrews 10.24, part of what we do here in the church so that we can have the authentic faith that, believe it or not, the world is craving. I tell you this all the time. The people that don't love Jesus, they want you to win. They want your faith to be real. They're so tired of fake Christians. They want somebody to have something real. And the way that we get real faith is we irritate each other. We live near each other in community so that we see each other at the good and the bad and find out that we're loved anyway. 
and that's fantastic. So spur each other on. Irritate each other for Jesus. You're welcome. Number four. This one's going to seem like a no-brainer, but we've got to put it out there. We must be relational. Nothing that we've talked about to this point, being necessary, being equipping, and being authentic, none of that happens when you're just shouting things to each other from a distance. It happens in a relationship. And so we will boldly and unashamedly encourage attenders of the gathering to become members at the gathering. Because something happens when we put our roots down in one place. Listen, we live in a culture that actually encourages people to attend a handful of churches but never belong to any. I just want you to know right up front that we are not for that. Will it happen? Absolutely. But here's what, here's what we believe, and I've taught this before. You can go on the website and find the series called Planted, and you'll hear all this again. But I want you to listen. I want you to know this is biblical. This is not my interpretation, okay? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. It'll be verses 17 to 21. We live in a culture that encourages people to attend lots of churches but never belong to any. And I want you to understand that we believe that that short circuits the desire that Jesus has for the church. So you might be one of those people. And, and I get it, I've been one of those people too, where you're just like, hey, that looks good, hey, that looks good, hey, that looks good. So it's just buffet style all around the kingdom of God. And you might feel like you're growing, but here's what I want you to know. The scripture that we're getting ready to read says that you're actually short-circuiting the plan of God in your own life. You're sabotaging yourself. And here's the proof in scripture, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Starting there, this is Paul, and he's praying. He says, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here the awesome promises that we just read. Let me sum it up for you. Here we go. God wants you to have power. He wants you to be filled and overflowing. He wants to do more in and through you than you could ever imagine. And he wants to bring glory to himself through the church that will last forever. Everybody say amen. Amen. That's good stuff. The problem is none of that happens if you skip verse 17. You've got to be rooted and established. See, we want all that good stuff. But we don't want to put our roots down. You've got to be rooted. You've got to be established. In other words, the way we like to say it here, you need to be planted. And some of you are here and you're thinking, okay, I get it, Paul. I get it. But I'm planted in Christ. I can do all this on my own. Me and Joel, we got this great thing going on Sunday mornings. I watch him, and I just sing some worship music with Hillsong on the CD, and I'm growing in Christ, and I'm planted. I'm planted. I got it, man. I got it. And maybe to a lesser degree that can happen. But who is Paul giving these promises to? It's found in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now through the who? Church. Through the church. Everything we just read. 
Most of the time when Paul writes and uses the word church, he does not mean like this great worldwide church. He literally means the local church. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. And he's saying God's plan through you is that he would accomplish all the things that we just talked about. I love you enough to tell you that. I want you to know up front because I don't want to be the white dude in the tank top where you look at me someday and go, dude, why are you busting my chops? I like going other places. Awesome. Go other places, but there's only so much you'll get here. Because we believe that you've got to be planted to get the nutrients of the soil so that you can grow. The relational aspect aspect of this, this is why we use a word like covenant. That's why on the back side of your note sheet, it actually says a member covenant. It implies that we give regardless of what we get. It speaks of relationships more than rights. Um, I love this. I heard Matt Chandler talk about this, and it was just fantastic. He's like, what covenant means is this. It means that you don't walk into church and go, well, somebody better greet me. Somebody better greet me right now. Somebody better greet me in the next five minutes or I'm out of here. Because that demands rights. But a covenant says, I will greet. I will serve. And I will do it regardless of whether you or I do it. He says this, nobody, that's, he says the fact that it's a covenant is what makes a wedding so special. Weddings wouldn't be nearly as good if the vows went something like this. I promise to love you and to keep you as long as you do everything I ask you to. As long as you pick up the laundry, I'll also mow the grass. Or in our case, even if you do the laundry, I probably won't mow the grass. See, if marriage vows were like that, we'd be like, yuck, that's not going to last. But a marriage vow, the reason that you women love Nicholas Sparks movies It's because when you watch them, you think, oh, he loves her no matter what. And that's covenant language. I'm challenging you. Bring that into the church. How about we love each other with covenant language? No matter what. You know what helps you do that? Being planted. Do you know why Parker, Will, and Sydney are still my kids even on the days that I'm a jerk of a dad? Because they have my last name. They're in the family. They, they can't just, can you see Sydney at, she's getting ready to be 11. Can you see Sydney? It's like grabbing the car keys. I'm out of here. It's not going to happen. I mean, if she wanted to leave, I'd have to drive her there, right? There's so much safety and so much comfort in that, being a part of a family. So this is who we are as a church. We are necessary. We are equipping. We are authentic. We are relational. And these are the, uh, these are the aspects, the characteristics that help us accomplish our mission. We want to be near God in order to be sent to those far from Him. That comes from, let me read you that verse, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 11. I'm going to read some words, and you'll be like, I don't know what that means, but we'll skip through those and get to the good stuff. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. 
Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That is what you and I were. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, that is what you are. You are lost. You are a foreigner. You do not have hope. You do not have a family. You are alone in this world. But verse 13 says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We live near God. We come in here on a Sunday morning near God in order to be sent to those on the other six days of the week who are still far from him so that they can come and be near God. You want to know how you can plug into that? You, you can take that snazzy little rack card that you got this morning, and on the back of there's a QR code. You scan it with your smart device, and it'll take you to our website, and it'll tell you exactly the steps that you can take to do that. We are intentional. This is who we are. It's what we're all about at the gathering. And so today, here's what we want to do. We want to give you the opportunity to say yes to being planted here. We want to give you the opportunity to say yes to serving here. We want to give you the opportunity to say yes to being in community here. So here's how I want us to close it. The band's going to come up, and they're going to start playing this awesome music behind me. And I just want to read through with you the covenant. You don't have to read it. I'll read it for you. I want to read the covenants on the back of your sheet once I get one. Can I borrow some of my sheets? Sorry. would have been smart if I'd have gotten one of those. Thanks. And then after I read the covenant, we're going to take time to pray and receive communion. Now, listen, let me just make this clear. This morning, if you love Jesus, you can take communion. If I read this covenant and you go, well, that's just a bunch of hogwash. I'd never, ever sign that. Well, you can still take communion with us. Here's what our member covenant says. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. Being a member at the gathering is more family than formal. And yet we understand the power that lies in walking this journey together with others. The Bible recognizes this truth in Amos 3.3 when it asks a simple question, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? And the obvious answer is no. Not because we didn't sign a long list of things that we have to do or believe, but because it's just really hard to accomplish things when everyone is going in different directions. Not only that, it hurts. So being a part of the membership of the gathering really boils down to agreeing with our mission. Living near God, that happens through worship and personal spiritual growth. Living near man, that happens in fellowship and community. And making disciples through service, outreach, and intentional relationships. Our commitment to you as the elders and leadership at the gathering, if you're planted here, this is what you can expect from us. And if we don't do this, you can come and tell us that we're not doing our job. Our commitment to you is that we will love you deeply, equip you fully, protect you fiercely, and walk with you honestly. We take seriously our responsibility to help you discover what you were made for, Ephesians 2.10, to equip you for a steady life of service to God and man, Ephesians 4.11-13, and to help you prepare for the day when you will present yourself to Jesus, Revelation 19.6-8. And here are our expectations of you. And I think this is critical, okay? This is covenant language again. This is stuff that you commit. You say, I'll do this. What, not you're saying, you're not saying, hey, I'll do this if everything's perfect. That's easy. But you're saying, I'll do this because I'm, I'm planted here. This is my family. 
You ever, um, before I read this part, you ever been outside, dad's working in the yard, and it's really hot and you're sweating, and you come in and your kids are playing a game? How's that go? I'm like, are you serious? I've been with slaving outside and you've been playing a game. I might not say it or I might, I might think it, but at some point when you're in a family, don't you just look at the kids in your family, the people in your family go, how about carrying your weight around here? Don't you do that? Please nod your head if you do that. Okay, just to make sure I'm not the only one. Listen, church is no different. Church is no different. Church is made up of consumers and contributors. And we don't want you to be a consumer. We want you to be a contributor. So our expectations of you, and we have them, they are more practical than legal because each of them are necessary to maintain the relationships that are so valuable in the body of Christ We expect our members to serve in the church. Put on an orange shirt. Find your place and serve. We expect our members to pray for the church because you love it. To give to the church. Yes, more than a dollar. Because we expect that we're going to equip our church how to obey God in giving. We expect that so much, so we invest that so much in you. Do you know what we do when people come to the gathering and give for the first time? We send them a book called The Blessed Life. If you literally drop a dollar into the offering, we will send you a book that costs us 12. Because we so believe that God blesses generous people. We expect people here at the church to give. We expect them to read their Bible regularly, to love their brothers and sisters in Christ, respect the authority of the church leaders, attend worship services. I can't overstate that enough. I don't know what you would do with your kids if they never showed their face unless you were feeding them. But at some point, that gets old. But actually attend the church services and share the gospel with others in word and deed. And we're so excited to see you planted with us at the gathering. Our prayer is that you will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Psalm 1, 3.